Christ Church, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 1, as we continue our study uh, of this uh, fascinating uh, adventure story uh, about Jonah, the recalcitrant, reluctant prophet uh, of Israel. And as we learn uh, through his life, uh, like a mirror, a lot about ourselves uh, as well, and of the calling that God has placed on us as his people. I invite you to please stand now as we look this evening at verses 4 through 6. For context, I'll read verses 1 through 6. Please hear uh, the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Loving Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this afternoon we interviewed uh, three uh, different uh, people for church membership, and it was just delightful to hear their testimonies and uh, uh, one of them uh, is named Thomas Watson, and I'm always quoting Thomas Watson from uh, the pulpit, uh, but not uh, the Thomas Watson that's joining the church, I'll have you mind, uh, but Thomas Watson, the famous seventh, 17th century English Puritan. And he wrote a wonderful little book, which I have quoted on a number of occasions, uh, called The Godly Man's Picture, Written with a Scripture Pencil. Uh, If you've not read this book yet, uh, make sure you repent and go buy it and read it. Uh, The Godly Man's Picture, written with a scripture pencil. Since reading it and talking about it and posting about it a bit, I've learned about so many people who make this actually an annual read. It's just that good. And in it, Watson describes the life and character and fruit of the godly man. In section 24, he expounds upon the fact that a godly man strives to be an instrument for making others godly. He writes that the godly man is, quote, not content to go to heaven, but wants to take others there. He is not content just to go to heaven. He also, or she also, wants to take others there. He goes on, quote, The glory of Christ is as dear to him as his own salvation. Therefore, that this may be promoted, he strives with the greatest effort to bring souls to Christ. 
If men loved Christ, they would try to draw as many as they could to him. He who loves his captain will persuade others to come under his banner. He who loves his captain will persuade others to come under his banner. This is indeed a clear uh, mark of a godly man or woman, namely wanting others to be drawn unto Christ and praying and working toward that end. It's on his mind. It's on her mind to do this very thing. Jonah, of course, is a book that helps us to reflect upon God's uh, compassion and mercy uh, for even the vilest of sinners, like the Ninevites, and whether or not uh, we reflect that same compassion and mercy towards others. I have had uh, many good examples in my own life of faithful missionaries who had a heart for the lost and were willing to sacrifice and to suffer for such ends. Uh, one of them I've mentioned uh, from this pulpit and also uh, the, the pulpit that we had over at uh, Moultrie Middle School, uh, that grand cathedral of Reformed architecture uh, where we used to worship for five years. I know you're missing those benches terribly as you sit in those beautiful uh, new chairs. Uh, but uh, his name is Mr. John Dorsey. And uh, Mr. Dorsey served for over 55 years in New Delhi, India, and uh, was always sort of a, just a life lesson. The things that he said, the things that he did, I would just watch him and see all these things that he was doing. And I thought, I want to be like Mr. Dorsey. I don't know that I've ever cried so hard as when the Lord took him uh, uh, to heaven in his late 70s. Uh, but he was a great man. And I'll never forget uh, when I arrived in New Delhi, India for the first time. I was, I think, 22 or 23 years old, and uh, I was, of course, a little nervous. You fly into India. It's just really an experience like you've never had if you've never been to India. And uh, I arrived there, and he begins assigning me all these different assignments around the city. And he said, there's your bike. And, uh, and I said, well, I thought only Mormons rode their bikes around, you know. And uh, he said, no, Christians ride them too. I said, okay. So uh, I was riding my bike all around Delhi in the crazy traffic, and he would actually uh, be out in front of me uh, he weighed about 300 pounds. He was a, a very large man. He would sort of bump people out of the way as he was riding the bikes by him. He'd ring the bell and then bump them over. There's people everywhere, cars, rickshaws, motorcycles, elephants, monkeys on the side of the road. It was just a, 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 a crazy, crazy environment. Well, we would go, and I remember one time we rode our bikes over to the Agricultural University, which is uh, like the Harvard University of India. It's, it's the place where the brightest minds in India come to study agriculture, which is a big deal in India, as you can, as you can imagine. And we were there when we were having this Bible study, and, uh, and it was just so moving to, to be singing hymns. In fact, when we sang, And Can It Be This Morning, I was thinking of how we sang that uh, after Bible study. And then uh, Mr. Dorsey said, Well, I need to leave now. I want you to spend more time with the students, and I'm going to go, and uh, you're going to meet me uh, in the other part of the city. Well, uh, what I learned later is that he was going to the slum. So there are lots of slums in Delhi, of course, but he was going into one of the largest slum el uh, areas in Delhi. And when we arrived there, uh, he, the, the rickshaw uh, dropped us off, and I was with a seminary student, and he said, okay, let's go. So we went back in about a half mile back into these slums. 
sewage and waste coming down the middle, wires all over the top, little dwellings, people looking at this six-foot, blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy walking through there, like, what in the world is he doing there? And, and it was just a, a fascinating, sort of scary, I admit. I, it, was, it was frightening to be back in there. And, uh, and we were going back in, and finally we arrive, and I look in, and there's Mr. Dorsey, 71, 72 years old, sitting on a stool with about 10 elementary school children in front of him, and they're singing gospel hymns together. I was so overwhelmed. This man is pouring out his life for the sake of the gospel to reach the Indians, South Asian Indians, with the gospel. I'll never forget it. And it reminds me of the good example, the, the, the counter example of, of Jonah. Uh, we learned uh, last time uh, that Jonah was a man who, uh, who was called to rise up. He was called to rise up and to, to go. Uh, the first thing that happened, of course, was the word of the Lord came. You look there in verse 1. The word of the Lord came uh, to Jonah. And it's, again, interesting to take note of that expression, the word of the Lord. It's it's found here in verse 1, and it's a common expression, again, found over a hundred times in the Old Testament. That's the way it works. God reveals his word to the prophet. The prophet is then uh, to go forth and to preach this word uh, to the people to whom he is sent. There was a specific command as well, you'll remember, to go to Nineveh. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Sometimes in church planting, you sort of you know, have a say in where you're going to go and to plant and such. Uh, but this is not the case with the prophets. God said, this is the word, and you will go there. He, he made it clear. And call out against it. Remember, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria located about 600 miles northeast of Israel. It was the seat of Assyrian royalty since the 13th century B.C. And, remember, one of Israel's chief political enemies. The Ninevites were also a violent people. They were a brutal people. And, and so Jonah is sent there to give this message, a sobering message, call out against it, against the evil that has come up before me. And then verse 3. But Jonah, he rose up not to obey the voice of the Lord, but to disobey. In fact, to run in the opposite direction. He rose up to flee to Tarshish. Twice, it says, he fled the presence of the Lord. An impossibility, we have learned, but in the sense in which he didn't want to be around God's people. He didn't want to be around the means of grace. He wanted to be away from the presence of the Lord. Why did he run? Well, we've considered briefly the fact that it was a long and dangerous journey. The fact that they were Israel's enemies. The fact that they were a violent people. All of these would be reasons why uh, people would want to hold you back from going. I'm currently studying the life of John Payton, a missionary that I've mentioned uh, previously from this pulpit a couple uh, of weeks ago. And when he was called to be a missionary, he's, he was Scottish, and he was called to be a missionary to the New Hebrides, which is modern-day Vanuatu, 
he was going to a peoples who were cannibals. And there were missionaries that went there prior to him that were killed and eaten. And you know, when he was uh, discouraged from going by various people around him, and you can understand why, again, they're a violent people, a dangerous people, they're cannibals. There would be reasons for family and friends to say, are you sure about this? Look how your ministry is prospering in Glasgow. Why would you go? You may get eaten, they said. Oh, the response is glorious. John Payton said, well, we are all going to die. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Maybe you get eaten by worms and I get eaten by people. But either way, we will both rise up on Resurrection Day. What a glorious, glorious word of faith. But this was certainly not Jonah's heart. Jonah was running in the opposite direction. There may have been various reasons. We do know the main reason. We see that in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. After Nineveh repents. Jonah 4, 1 through 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's why I ran, Lord, because I I knew you were going to do this. You're a loving and merciful God. And then he says in verse, it says in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah was running because he knew that God was merciful and may just have mercy on his enemies. He didn't want to be a part of that. And so he ran. God told him to rise up and go to Nineveh. Verse 3, however, states, but Jonah rose to flee. I wonder, as we reflect upon Jonah's life, how often we find ourselves looking right at Scripture that gives us a clear command about whatever it may be. And we continue to look at that and we continue to flee in the opposite direction. Sometimes people talk about open doors. You know, Jonah could have said, hey, I have an open door. I got this ticket to Tarshish. A door has been opened to me. I'm going to walk through it. The problem is those kinds of doors are not the doors we should be walking through. The doors of disobedience. I have had individuals look at me straight in the face and say, God is leading me to divorce my wife. I say, show me that one in Scripture. I've had others tell me God is going to be okay with me living in this lifestyle or whatever. Here's the thing. This is just like Jonah getting a clear command and running in the opposite direction. Of course, I've been mindful as we have had mission uh, weekend this past weekend where Reverend Gordon gave uh, two wonderful sermons and Sunday school lesson reminding us of our our privileges and responsibilities in, in world mission that I've been mindful of, of, of our church that we would be found faithful to the Great Commission in its 
primary application where we are making disciples through word and sacrament and supporting others who are making disciples through word and sacrament around the world, but also in its secondary and tertiary application that, that, that we all, everyone in this room, would see it as a privilege, a joy, and a responsibility to be salt and light, to, to give that answer for the hope that's within you to lost people all around you. People today are confused. They are looking for meaning. They are looking for identity. And they're letting crazy people tell them the direction they should go. Just think if you were one of them right now, lost. You have a wonderful opportunity to step in and to be that that evangelist, that loving Christian to step in and share Christ with others. Well, what do we have next? Jonah rises up. He flees in the opposite direction, away from the presence of the Lord. Now look at verse 4, but the Lord. Don't you love the play on words here? But Jonah rose up and flee. Now, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. I suppose I should have consulted uh, Dr. Williams this week on the difference between a hurricane and a tempest, but I do know something uh, about it that it has to do with wind and wind patterns uh, within uh, the storm. If I have messed that up, uh, you can talk to Gabe after the service. We read, but Jonah at first, and now we read, but the Lord. And what we see here is the sovereign Lord of creation hurling a great wind and tempest upon the sea. Here we are shown many things, not the least of which is that God is the one true and living God. He's the creator God. He's the maker of all things, and he does as he pleases. We see this language used all over and over again in our Bibles. Psalm 135, verse 7. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. Poetic language to communicate that it is God who controls the wind and the rain, the lightning and the thunder and the storms. Jeremiah 23, 19. Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath, even a whirling tempest. It will swirl down on the head of the wicked. Psalm 65 and verse 7. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples? Now, interestingly, as we come to this text in Jonah 1, and we are brought to think of Psalm 65, 7 and other passages where we have God not only bringing the storms, but calming the storms, our minds are immediately led to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are meant to be led there. The Bible is ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ, and so when we have this language of the storm on the sea and the the, the sailors who are afraid, and Jonah who is asleep for the wrong reasons, 
we are led to think of our Savior. If you have your Bibles, look with me at Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. Do you know why Jesus was asleep? Because he was tired. (laughs) He was exhausted, and he was a really good sleeper, apparently. He also had trust in his heavenly Father. And it gave him a clear conscience and made him a good sleeper. Verse 25, And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Do you see the language similarities to this in our text for this evening? And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm, and the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Well, those of you who have been studying your Christology know the answer to that question. The kind of man Jesus is, is the God-man, fully God, fully man. God the Father, through the Son, created the world. God the Father, through the Son, through the Word of the Son, maintains and sustains the world and all things in it, all by the Spirit. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God-man, and even the winds and sea obey him. And so every time you see mention of God sending forth the storms, uh, raising up the tempest, bringing the lightning, the thunder, the storms, we ought to remember that it is Christ the one true God who is bringing those things about. Even the winds and the sea obey him. I love question 18 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. To his own glory. This new religion called climate change, it is a religion. There can be debates about temperatures rising, temperatures falling over the course of centuries. We don't have centuries worth of of statistics, right? Uh, But what we do see is this kind of pagan view that is being put forth about the climate and so-called Mother Nature and how we need to be the ones to save the world. Now, I'm not talking about climate change tonight. I promise you that. But what I will say is it's a godless ideology that's being used to manipulate and to scare and to put fear in the hearts of everyone. We know the God who controls the weather. We know the God who is the sovereign Lord over all, and we do not need to live in fear. 
even if the temperatures rise a little bit over the next 20 years or go down the following 20 years. Our God is the God of creation. He is the maker of all things, and we trust Him. And so we need not live in fear. Uh, what a wonderful thing to be able to communicate to our neighbors who are fearful because they're being taught to live in fear based on what they're hearing over and over and over again. Well, this is the response, of course, that we have from the mariners, uh, the sailors on board, a fearful response. Look with me at verse 5a. So this uh, great wind is hurled by the Lord upon the sea. Uh, the ship is threatened to break up. Uh, they know the signs of, 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 of a storm and how it might affect the boat. And it says there in verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And each cried out to his God. This, this means, of course, that uh, they all had different gods. Uh, there were different gods for different occupations and different areas of where they lived. And uh, there was a god of the sea. And uh, some scholars believe that they were crying out to Baal uh, as one who would be over the sea. Uh, but certainly they were the gods of these mariners. And um, this is indeed, when thinking about it uh, more deeply, the response of, of the world, is it not? And it can often be our own response that when uh, the storms uh, arise and when there is something that takes place in our lives to be fearful over, we, we, we tend to, in our sin, want to work it out on our own. We want to control it, and we think that by controlling something, the fear is going to go away, but it actually only gets worse. And rather than trust in God, we put our trust in idols to, to appease us, to, to make us feel better. We cry out to false gods. We look to the idols of wealth and entertainment and possessions and status. But dear ones, these so-called gods will not answer. They will not answer. I remember uh, six months into this church plant uh, being diagnosed with, with cancer and speaking to a minister uh, who exhorted me, and, and he, he himself had thyroid cancer in the past. He's actually battling cancer again, sadly. But he said to me, uh, John, it's really important on the heels of this cancer surgery, uh, because you will have fear rise up in your heart at different times. He said it's important that you don't just try to forget about this situation and put it out of your head and and, and try to fill your life with things to distract you from the reality of this situation. He said, you also do not need to become fearful and allow that fear to grow. He said, you need to look at this situation straight in the eyes and believe the promises of God. That all things work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. See, the response of the world here is to cry out to false gods, but it shouldn't be our response. And if we ever find ourselves there, we need to repent and to throw ourselves into the safe arms of Jesus who always has his best for us. The idols that they called out to are vain because they are no gods at all. 
This reminded me of Psalm 115. Psalm 115 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. We become like the one we worship. And of course, as Christians, we know we don't become divine, but we become more like Christ. The psalm ends in verses 16 and following. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down in silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth And forevermore, praise the Lord. So, dear ones, let us not look to the world. Let us look to Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't just calm the storm and do great miracles, but he went to the cross at Calvary and bore those long metal spikes in his wrists and his feet. And he suffered and died, not just great physical pain, but that spiritual burden of the sins of all the elect throughout the ages, going through hell for us, and then rising again from the dead on the third day. Christ is the greater Jonah. Jonah wasn't so great, but Christ is the greater Jonah who was in the belly of the fish, or Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. Christ was in the belly of the earth for three days, and he rose from the dead. What did the, what did the um, mariners do next? It says here they hurled uh, their, their cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, the recalcitrant prophet, had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Jonah was down in the inner chamber. He was exhausted. He may have been up uh, for 24 hours, 36 hours. We don't know. But he must have been really exhausted to be sleeping through this storm. Maybe it was the perspective of the one who came down to get him. Maybe he was down there cowering. Maybe he was acting like he was sleeping. We don't know. But it says here that he was sleeping And he was rebuked by this pagan man. What do you mean? The captain came to him. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Some of the connections with the Matthew 8 passage are interesting. Jonah sleeping. Christ sleeping, a storm, the word, we don't want to perish, all these similarities. But in the end, of course, we are pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom we receive life, the one 
in whom we will not perish. This story, as we continue studying it, it, it's a reminder to us uh, not to look to the gods of this world. It's a reminder to us that uh, prophets and uh, pastors have weaknesses and struggles themselves. It's a a word to us uh, as Christian believers called to carry out the Great Commission that we often do a poor job uh, of that, uh, but it's also a glorious time to examine ourselves and to repent of our sins and to look to God for His grace and His mercy and His strength to carry on, to keep on going. Interestingly, in this section, Jonah never prays. In this section... He never prays. He is fleeing the presence of God, his people, his word, the means of grace. Perhaps in your own life, your prayer life has come to a standstill because you have been holding on to some secret sin, something that you know God would have you to run away from. That's what happens uh, to prayer when sin is held onto. The prayer is let go. And so let me encourage us all, as we see Jonah here, a prayerless prophet running from God, that we would not find ourselves in this same position, but looking to Christ, to his shed blood and righteousness for the forgiveness of sins and for a right standing with him. May we cultivate that relationship and grow in that relationship. As we continue on in this story, we will see highs and lows, uh, just as in all of our Christian lives. But uh, here, again, it's important to remember that the Bible is not hagiography. You, know, you may come to Jonah and not really know much about it and think, oh, we're going to learn so much from Jonah. Not so much from Jonah, but from God and Jonah's bad example. The Bible is not hagiography. When it comes to David, Abraham, Paul, we could just go right down the list. We see men and women who were sinners, but objects of God's sovereign mercy. He even saved Samson. Have you read about Samson lately? <laughs> Would you want your kids to hang out with Samson? I don't think so. Samson is in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. It's a testimony to God's love and the bigness of his grace and his kindness and his mercy that he would have a prophet like Jonah, that he would teach Jonah, and that he would send Jonah, and that he would make sure that Jonah got to where he was needing to go teaching him and all of us lessons about his grace, mercy, and patience with us in our lives. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you so much for this portion of your word. And Lord, as we continue to walk through the book of Jonah, we pray that you continue to teach us uh, from Jonah's bad example, but also about your loving, sovereign grace and mercy in Christ and the way that you deal so gently and lovingly with your people as we are in weakness, as it concerns our obedience to the Great Commission, as it concerns our witness in this world. Lord, grant us the grace to stand firm, to stand strong, uh, and to give that answer uh, of the hope 
that's within us to those who so desperately need it. And we pray for compassion for the lost, a burning zeal uh, for the lost, that they would be brought in and these seats would be filled. We pray these things in Jesus' name.